Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Multi-State Monday, where we discuss issues that are important to multi-state employers and things that you all might want to consider. I am Deanna Hayes. I am a shareholder in Ogletree Deacon's Tampa office, and I am one of the co-chairs of the firm's multi-state advice and counseling practice group, along with Lucas Asper. Today, I am joined by Susan Gorey, who is one of our frequent co-hosts. Susan, say hello to everyone. Hello, everybody. She's a member of our group and frequently helps clients in these areas. And we're joined today by our guest, Rebecca Bennett, who's a shareholder in our Cleveland office, and Benjamin Perry, who's an up-counsel attorney in our Nashville office. Both Rebecca and Ben are members of the firm's cybersecurity and privacy practice group. And Rebecca is a member of our multi-state group as well. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Absolutely. And to, to kick us off, this one is for Ben, and it's a broad question, and then we can dig into the details a bit. But Ben, what are the biggest areas in data privacy where multi-state clients often need help? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's there's quite a few areas, and um, one big one, obviously, is, is data breaches, both on the preparation side and the response. A lot of times, clients don't come to us until there's actually a data breach. And then once it gets to that point, obviously things have escalated a lot, and 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 then it's that that's when people start having those conversations about okay, well, what should we have done to begin preparing? What I've started encouraging people to do is to start thinking ahead and and looking at things they can do to be prepared, not only from a prevention standpoint, but what they can do to be prepared to to mitigate quickly. Because the the more people are prepared, the the much less expensive they will be down the road, um, and then. The, the other big piece, which kind of has a lot of sub layers, is just all of the comprehensive privacy laws that have gone into effect. Obviously, GDPR was the big one, first one that a lot of people knew about. Um, and now it's starting to spread across a bunch of states. We've got four that are currently now in effect with one more slated to be in effect by the end of the year. Um, there's already 12 that have been passed. So by the end of next year, we'll have eight different state comprehensive privacy laws that will be in effect. And they cover all sorts of things like targeted advertising, artificial intelligence, and it implicates things from privacy policies to, in California, uh, employee privacy notices similar to GDPR. And more and more countries like Quebec has now implemented something similar to GDPR. So I think that's the trend that we're seeing, and and it's only going to accelerate as time goes on. So Rebecca, what are you seeing on this front as far as um, just CCPA in California and other kind of state comprehensive privacy laws? Sure. So we had the CCPA, which is the California Act, which turned into the CPRA, California Privacy Rights Act, just by amendment. And that has been the model for the other states that have enacted privacy laws. So California built upon the GDPR, which applies in Europe, the General Data Privacy Regulation. And then now the other states are learning from California. And California is different, though, than the other states because, as Ben mentioned, not only does it affect consumers, but it affects employment information. And I fully expect 
that other states are likely to follow suit once they get their privacy agencies up and running. And generally speaking, with regard to privacy information regarding your employees, we're talking about sensitive, personal, identifiable information and things that you need to do other than just data breach requirements to protect that information. And then more importantly, the rights that individuals have over your use of their own information. So that's that's what I'm seeing um, on a state law compliance issue. Yeah, and I mean, it's not just um, these comprehensive privacy laws, right? I mean, we have biometric specific laws, employee monitoring specific laws, artificial intelligence and employment specific laws. Can you talk a little bit about the employee monitoring side that you've seen? Sure. So employee monitoring is a really interesting issue because there's all sorts of great technology that employers are taking advantage of that involves monitoring their employees, but it's not necessarily just to see what they're doing. It's to make their employees more efficient. It's to track their travel for purposes of logistics. It's metrics. It's to implement safety procedures. So what what I see employers using are things like GPS or geolocation on work vehicles. I see employees monitoring key logging and internet searches. Uh, There's video and audio surveillance, and there's monitoring software that combines with artificial intelligence. So these are the types of things that we're seeing. And so it begs the question, you know, what are the laws that apply? You know, most folks have the misperception that the United States has a privacy law, a comprehensive privacy law that tells employers what they can and cannot do. But it's not as easy as that. There's a patchwork of applicable laws. It starts with federal laws like the National Labor Relations Act, which says what you can and cannot do to interfere with your employees. Um, And then there's wiretapping laws, there's federal and state laws, there's some criminal surveillance laws. But then we also have some state privacy laws that directly affect monitoring. Um, So we don't have a federal law that affects when you can and cannot monitor your employees. But Connecticut, Delaware, Texas, and New York have laws that require employers to notify employees about the use of monitoring software beforehand, or in some cases at the time of collection. You see that phrase a lot in the data privacy laws. But the biggest issue for compliance is you would want to have a policy in place Uh, And then you would want to provide informed consent. So that means you give the employee notice exactly what you're monitoring and you obtain their consent before you do the monitoring. So that's the easiest way to comply from a legal perspective, but there's lots of issues with regard to how that's going to be received. What do you do if an employee refuses to consent? I just had a a quick question as I'm sitting here and I'm familiar with some of these because I've dealt with them from a multi-state issue with regard to employee monitoring. But back to, Ben, what you said, and then Rebecca, you kind of chimed in about the general data privacy laws and those relating to the employee-sensitive information. Do all states have a um, law on the books with regard to that? And if they don't, do you expect to see that coming, kind of making the, the way across the U.S.? And then what exactly is it? Is it just like making sure that the personnel records were secure or is it more than that? Yeah, so I mean, every state has some form of just generalized obligation to protect data that you possess. A lot of times they're part of the data breach statute. California actually has a private right of action for failing to protect personal information. 
Um, and that's, you know, that's one of those things it's, you know, data breaches happen every day. I think there was some stat I looked at the other day where there was a data breach happening every five and a half seconds. So not only are we seeing a surge in data breach lawsuits, and even if they don't have a private right of action, like under California's law, you know, they'll assert all sorts of common law causes of action for negligence and everything else. And it's, it's becoming a, a big issue, not only from a litigation and just cost standpoint, because data breaches are very expensive, but then you have these, uh, like, especially in California, where you have data subject rights, you could have a surge of people, employees, or whoever, whoever's information you hold submitting data subject rights after a data breach saying, you know, we want to know exactly what you hold about us. And in the employment context, that can be very, very difficult to establish because you may hold information about an employee in a variety of contexts and you may not be tracking it very well, um, which is one of the reasons why data mapping, figuring out where all of your data is, where it travels, who you're providing it to is very important, um, not only from that data subject access uh, perspective, but also because a lot of these laws now require you to contractually obligate your processors, the people who are uh, you're providing data to and who are providing services on your behalf. Uh, there's all sorts of restrictions you have to place around how they can use the information, whether they can use it for their own purposes, how they can share it, how they have to retain that data. Um, so there's kind of a lot of moving parts and they all kind of intersect. So it gets okay. very complicated very quickly. Okay. And so other than California, from the just the strict data privacy, the information that you hold and or track, California right now is the only state that has a private right of action from employees. No, as far some of the other states have that built into their, their data breach statute. California, I believe, and Rebecca, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe California is actually part of the CPRA amendments. They, right. they provide that private right of action. Let me give you a little bit of input on, on sort of the interpreting the patchwork of laws. So we mentioned the GDPR, which Susan, you asked about. That's the general data privacy rights regulation in Europe, in the European Union. And that is a comprehensive data privacy legislation that takes into account all sorts of kind of private information, whether it's consumers or employee information, et cetera. We do not have that yet in the United States. Rather, we have a patchwork of laws, the most comprehensive of which is California. That applies to consumers and employees. We, the other states that Ben mentioned that also have laws right now only apply to consumers. And then the states that I mentioned that have data monitoring laws or employee monitoring laws um, are completely different. So it sounds like it's the same thing, but it's not. So we're talking about different types of data and the laws that may apply. So the most comprehensive in the US being the California uh, Privacy Rights Act has the following rights for employees and consumers about the kind of private information you might hold, like their bank account information, their email addresses, their health information, et cetera. Employees and consumers have a right to know that you have it. They have a right to ask you to delete it. They have the right to opt out or opt in to your program. They have the right to ask you to correct their private information. They have the right to limit the use of it and the last more important right is the right to non-discrimination. So in other words, you can't discriminate against somebody based on the information that they did or did not provide to you. And so that's what the data privacy law does in California. And that's what other states, that's the trend we expect other states to have. And there's penalties associated with not having a policy in place 
and not following these rules. And Rebecca, this is Deanna jumping in here. When you're talking about these policies, uh, what are you seeing? Uh, do employers typically include that in an employee handbook or would they keep that type of policy separately potentially from the employee handbook? Great question, Deanna. What I see the most is that employers are combining this privacy policy with their website privacy policy. That's typically what you see. And one of the reasons that it's a good idea to do that is because your website policy is pretty dynamic. You can change it easily without having to redistribute and, uh, you know, and, and have it pass through your intranet system, et cetera. So that's where we see it the most. Because of other, not laws, but FTC regulations, lots of companies have had website privacy policies for a long time. So what we typically do when a client comes to us and says, hey, we think we have to comply with California's law, then we start usually with their website privacy policy and we build on that. I've also seen that be a standalone as well, um, because you know the website policy, a lot of times you're collecting very different information than what you're collecting from employees, right? So for employees, a lot of times, some employers will split that out and do both an employee CCPA notice and, and have that either incorporated into their handbook or oftentimes just a separate standalone that they have employees acknowledge receipt of, and then a separate job applicant notice that is posted on their online job applicant page because the, the information obviously is much more limited about what you're collecting from job applicants. Right. On the website side, you know, there's all sorts of web trackers nowadays. And, and that's been a huge source of concern for our clients because a lot of times marketing will just throw stuff up on the website without any understanding or idea of, of the legal implications of that. And there's been tons of litigation over things like pixels and stuff that is sharing information with third-party companies and the, the lawsuits people are bringing are under these archaic wiretapping statutes, the one-party, two-party consent states. There's also been a bunch of litigation under some 1998, uh, the Video Privacy Protection Act, where whenever you view a video, it'll share that with other companies. There's been litigation over chat bots, over sharing those transcripts with the vendors. Um, there's all sorts of issues. And then other companies are putting things on their websites um, that's called session replay software. There's been a bunch of litigation over that where it basically tracks your entire visit throughout the website, whether that's as a continuous feed or just taking screenshots of what you're doing every three or five seconds and basically building a profile of your entire interaction with the website. So there's a lot of, a lot of tools out there and, and a lot of times companies need to think twice about um, a, is there actually a business need for that? And, and B, you know, if they are going to employ them, making sure that they have the the appropriate disclosures in place. Certainly. And that's a lot to unpack there. And what about turning to biometric law issues in, in the workplace? What are you doing there with respect to how employers are handling um, potential policies there and other best practices? Sure. So this is another example of the patchwork of laws. Because we also, in addition to these general privacy laws and laws about employee monitoring, there are separate laws about what employers can and can't do with the biometric information they collect about their employees. So biometrics are unique physical characteristics like fingerprints or voice recognition that can be used to automate recognition for identification of the person and authentication of who you are. So you can also, uh, other technology includes retinal scans, facial recognition or face geometry, uh, hand scans, 
There's now even software that recognizes vein patterns in your hands and also gait patterns. So lots of interesting technology available. And so the question is, is, is what does the law say about that? Well, the very first state to enact a biometrics law was Illinois, and that was in 2008. It regulates collection, storage, and use of biometric information. And the purpose of this is really just to protect privacy and security of that information and to prevent access to that sensitive personal information. You know, those t that type of information, when it's stored, is your identity. And if it's stolen, it's identity theft. Um, so the party started in Illinois, um, and then other states have followed suit um, so that now we have states, let's see, we've got Arkansas, California, Colorado, Maryland, New York, Texas, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. So all of those states also have biometrics laws. And these have been popping up. So if um, a company hasn't checked this out in a while, they may not realize that they have to comply with these laws. And so what do generally these laws provide? Well, I'll start with the Illinois law because it's the one that others have built upon. First of all, just like we've been talking about before, it requires that you have a written policy that's made available to the public and that you have retention schedules and guidelines for permanently destroying the biometric information. You've got to protect that information with a reasonable standard of care with regard to its security. Um, and then again, we've got this notice and consent. You've got to inform the people who you're collecting the information that you're doing so, and you've got to receive a written release. And here's the, here's the issue for employers. Here's the risk issue. It provides for the recovery of liquidated damages. So somebody's identity doesn't actually need to be stolen. Um, if you don't have the policy in place, you're going to get a liquidated damages amount per occurrence, plus you get attorney's fees and expenses. So this has sort of become a surprise thorn in the side of employers in Illinois and now in other states that have similar laws. In Illinois, there's the private right of action, right? And so the Illinois Supreme Court actually came out and made it a bunch worse because they said that it was penalty per scan as opposed to just, you know, a single violation per person. So you think about how many times if you're if you're collecting fingerprints, for example, if people are using that to clock in and out at work, think about how many times an employee may scan their fingerprint in the in the course of a year. Then you multiply that across however many employees that you have, companies are getting hit with billion dollar judgments. And uh it's it's becoming a very, very um expensive issue for employers yeah. to resolve. So Ben and Rebecca to that point what other types, other than the fingerprint scans for clocking in and out, these kind of biometrics laws would, they kind of go side by side along with geofencing and GPS tracking. Is that correct? In some ways. So the biometrics term is confusing, frankly. And it's because, in my opinion, it's used in other contexts with regard to other laws. So for instance, the EEOC uses the term biometrics when they talk about biometric measurements, which is a little bit different. And that's when, you know, you take somebody's blood pressure measurement for purposes of determining whether they're going to get benefits under a wellness program. But the biometrics laws I'm talking about really are just facial recognition and um, retina scans, fingerprints, anything that is uh, something of one's body that's used to identify the person. So it's not something that changes like blood pressure. Geo, the geolocation issue is also a little bit different. 
just because of what the technology is. But what's the same for all of these is they all recognize that the information is private and that if it gets in the wrong hands, it could cause damage. And therefore, employers are obligated to do the same things. And you'll see repeated the same compliance requirements with some variation, but it's generally speaking, you have to have a policy, you have to provide notice in advance or at the time of collection, and in some cases, you have to get written consent, not in all cases. And that's where the multi-state compliance issue comes into play, because employers are going to need to decide, you know, if you have operations in every state, you may want to make it easy on yourself and just require consent and a notice all over. But if that's going to be too cumbersome and you only operate in a few states, then you're going to want to understand which states require it and which states don't. And in the employment context, those issues come up in terms of timekeeping and security, correct? Those are two great examples, yes. Any other examples that might be kind of out there or not commonly thought of that would run against these issues? Yeah, so some examples might include something like movies about what things look like in the future. You know, you could use a retina scan to get access to a secured area of a facility, and therefore you keep that information. And then there's a data breach of your systems, and then somebody's got their retina scan that then they can use to, uh, you know, access bank information. You know, so you're going to be seeing these types of security measures, because really that's what they are, is it's a more secure way to identify somebody. Um, And so that's why we want to use them. We just have to have regulations in place that address the misuse. Yeah. And I'll I'll say another example I've seen is for uh, in, in the trucking industry, for example, there are cameras now that use artificial intelligence to figure out whether or not drivers are getting sleepy. And when you think about things like that, that that's one of those things where it kind of has an intersection of all these different laws, right? I mean, you're potentially implicating employee monitoring laws, biometrics laws, and AI uh, in employment laws. And another example is uh, cameras just that people are installing at storefronts, whether that's for um, safety to, you know, see if somebody has a gun or um, just to see, analyze foot traffic, um, and there's there's laws popping up specific to surveillance in public areas, like in New York. It's going to roll out and uh, more and more across states, and it's frankly uh, requires looking at this every single day to try to figure out how things are changing and keeping up with this this patchwork of laws. And Ben, you brought up an interesting point, like with the AI, and I know the EEOC has recently come out with some guidance with respect to AI. How are some, what are some other contexts where AI might come into play for employers? Um, well, a lot of times it's automated decision-making in employment, right? So figuring out if, if people are using it, for example, to scan resumes, or I've even seen employers using it to analyze job applicant interviews and figure out if they're a good fit for that company. And I think we can all see how you could get into a lot of trouble there Um, Because if you're relying solely on this automated technology to make these decisions for you, you could be inadvertently discriminating. And a lot of these employment AI and employment laws require opt-out rights and notice as far as making sure that there's some sort of manual person involved in that process so that it's not fully automated. So you're not having what they call uh, producing a legal effect 
um, without some sort of manual oversight of that process. Sure, that makes sense. And um, this has been really enlightening. I appreciate both of you coming on and sharing this information. I would say to condense some of this down, um, Ben and Rebecca, could you each share a few things that employers might want to consider as far as action items when it comes to making sure they're in compliance? Sure. Why don't I get started? I think one of the most important things to do is to understand what you have. As Ben mentioned before, you know, your marketing department may be using some great technology that HR and legal isn't even aware of that implicates compliance with various employment or consumer laws. So I think it's a great idea to have a point person on your staff that's responsible for gathering that information and updating that information. A lot of times, if you if in a larger company, that can be somebody in uh, in-house counsel. At a smaller company, it might be somebody that's in uh, a financial role and or an IT role. But I think one of the first steps is to make sure you understand what information you have, where it is, what vendors you're using that may have access to that information, and certainly what contracts do you have with vendors what does the language say in those contracts about what happens when there's a data breach? You want to know that in advance before any type of issue has occurred so that you can act quickly and that you know who's responsible for what action. Yeah, that's a great point, Rebecca. Um, and also to your point about vendors, I know a lot of employers are starting to use more and more uh, employers of record for hiring international employees. And, and that's great, but I think Companies need to take a close look at their contracts with these companies and making sure that, A, not only are is the obligation on the, the EOR to make sure that they're complying with not only HR laws, but all of these evolving privacy laws, but that there's some sort of process either for reimbursement and or indemnification if something happens, whether that's a, a violation of just privacy law generally or a data breach. Because um, a lot of times what happens in the data breach world is a vendor will experience a data breach, but ultimately that's on the data owner. And that's going to be the person who collects that information and determines why it's being used and where it's going, which in most contexts, in the employment context, is the employer. And a lot of employers are experiencing vendor data breaches and looking at their contracts. And there are no provisions whatsoever as far as uh, what the the vendor is responsible for or whether the vendor has to pay for legal fees, for costs of notification, for forensics, for regulator penalties, for litigation. So you could see how that could get out of control really quickly if if companies haven't taken a close look at those vendor contracts and making sure that uh, companies that could be a huge source of liability for them aren't properly papered up. Absolutely. Definitely important points to consider there. And thank you, Ben. Thank you, Rebecca, again, yes. for, for joining us today. Thank you, Susan, for uh, co-hosting with me. Thanks to all of you for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other episodes of Multistate Monday. You can find them on Ogletree's website. You can also follow the hashtag ODMultistate to get updates on these issues. If you want more information, last month they did a webinar on this exact issue. Rebecca or Ben, you want to just briefly recap the webinar for us? Sure, I'll do that. So if you want more information or you want to take a deeper dive, uh, last month we did a webinar called Multi-State Compliance Part 3, Future of Work, Navigating Employee Monitoring, Biometrics, and AI Developments. And that is still available either on our website or uh, just reach out to your relationship attorney and they can get you a link. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks, everybody. Thank you both. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.